0: Welcome to a very special episode of Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged with Rasan Bahati. From Compton to Crypt Champion, Bahati's story is one of a troubled black youth who found passion in cycling only for it to become his secret obsession. He continued to inspire inner city kids to this day with the Bahati Foundation doing some incredible work. Ask Matt is back too and I'll be answering more of your weird and wonderful questions plucked from the bowels of social media. Hello and welcome are you ready? Because it's, that time again, matched, done, it's midsummer in the Northern Hemisphere, and for a lot of you, that means longer rides, making most of the daylight. More time in the saddle needs more energy. So, to ensure you don't go hungry on your summer adventures and enjoy 40% off Cliff Bar Energy Bars and 25% off blocks for the whole month of July at Sigma Sports. For more information, visit sigmasports.com forward slash podcast. A crit racing specialist with an explosive sprint, Rasan Bahati was crowned US Pro National Criterium Champion in 2008. Coming from the city of Compton, LA, his story of how a black kid became one of the most successful athletes in a predominantly white sport is as entertaining as it is important. For the past 10 years, his Bahati Foundation has been helping inner city kids to enjoy similar chances to the one he took. He's a remarkable human being, and I was delighted to catch up with him and spend a little extra time than usual discussing some of the bigger topics on today's podcast. Enjoy. First and foremost, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Yeah, of course. Excited to be
0: here. No, it's great, mate. And for our uh, audience, could you, and what we normally do, we just like to set the scene. um, Mm -hmm. Can you just describe to me, well, tell us where in the world you are, and also describe what you can see around you?
1: Okay, I like to tell people I'm in a a dangerous part of LA, and then the follow-up question is always, what part of LA? And I say, LA, and that's the end of that. Uh, okay. But uh, seriously, I'm in, I'm in a little area called Lamert Park. Uh, for those of you who know Los Angeles at all, um, I'm about uh, 10 miles northeast of Los Angeles International Airport, uh, okay. just on the other side of the hill there. Uh, pretty cool little area, kind of artsy, and uh, it's been uh, massively gentrified at the moment. Um, and what I see around me, I see uh, bottles of liquor, uh, some art on the wall and, and, and two monitors. I'm staring at right now.
0: Nice, mate. Nice. Sounds sounds cool, mate. It sounds cool, and it's <laughs> and it's kind of it's like nine minutes past nine in the morning as well. Um, LA time, isn't it? As well. So yeah, it's yeah of-
1: it is Wednesday morning. Super overcast. Uh, we're still hanging out in June June gloom, so uh, it's nice and quiet in my house. But I'm sure I'm waking my family up now. Uh, Fair enough. But mate. yeah, it's good, good good morning.
0: And it's been a little while since we've, since we've actually um, spoken. I mean, I think it was actually, I mean, I might as well say now, you you work for Zwift. I, I I kind of, I do work for Zwift as well, but you're an employee of Zwift. And we last met up in Long Beach, didn't we? At the get together a couple of years ago now, isn't
1: it? Has it been two years?
0: I think so, because, wow. well, a year and a half, maybe. A year and a half, because this year's, yeah. obviously, there was no, there was no offsite this year. And we had it in March yeah. last year. So maybe like 14 months or something since I last saw you.
1: It's been a while, yeah, but I see you nearly every day because I'm watching the Tour de France replay. So I, I, I still feel connected to you.
0: Oh, mate, I don't know whether whether to, to feel sorry for you or to say, <laughs> yeah, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's put me in a slightly awkward position. But so, yeah, I'm, apologies, but also I hope you enjoy the coverage. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: no, it's really good. It's actually kind of cool to go back and look at just even the bike technology that was around, just even like three years ago, how it's nuts, massively it? different it is now today. Yeah. Um and then just seeing some of the old names that were dominant in the sport that are no longer in the sport it just brings back a lot of memory so I I've, I've enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I mean before I mean there's so much to, no, there's so much to talk about um, in from in various aspects but first off I mean before we kind of officially started talking you were saying that everybody gets up at midday in your house. Um, I guess that's kind of because of lockdown i mean i find myself sleeping in but staying up late i mean i'm a real no- I, I didn't used to be a night owl but i'm now like kind of working and deep on the internet like two three o'clock in the morning is quite common for me have yeah. you as your lifestyle kind of shifted like that as well or is that just the rest of your family because obviously you've got work commitments around that
1: yeah mine is a little bit of of all to be honest with you um you know with with all the 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 backlash from from the death of george George floyd and uh being quarantined at home and uh ha- having three kids and and my wife and my dog and everyone else confined in in our in our home which is not that big you know everything's just your world is kind of flipped upside down right yeah. And, Um, wasn't going outside at all for the first like five weeks. I just wouldn't dare get on my bike and go outside in fear of, uh, hurting myself and ending up in a hospital that was full of people that were fighting for their lives. So I said, Hey, I'm not going to do anything. I just, I rode Zwift until I couldn't ride it anymore. Yeah. Uh, And so now that my children are out of school, uh, they basically will sleep until you get them up. (laughs) So, you know, that could be 10 a.m., that could be 11, that could be 12. And so by the time they get up, uh, you know, they're hungry and it's time to eat. So by that time it's brunch, you know, and so uh, I I went on a almost like a three week band, dude, where. I didn't get any rest. I was going to bed at midnight and waking up at like three in the morning. Just so much on my mind, so much to say. I was getting hit up by a lot of different people within the industry. Wanted to get a word for me about how I felt, you know, during the, the during this time of unrest. Yes. And I yep. was very close to the rioting um, where I live now we were affected by the LA riots, the Watts riots, and now the riots just a few weeks ago. So this location has been hit with riots over the last 50 years, you know? Um, so <laughs> yeah, I just had a lot on my mind. I didn't sleep much at all, which, which was starting to be a little concerning because like I was getting literally three hours of rest at night, which wasn't good enough.
0: Jeez. Yeah. That's, that's going to impact on, on so many different things, isn't it? It's like your work although in no particular order, obviously looking after your family, but, Mm-hmm. Also, you know, importantly, mate, your own kind of sense of well-being. I mean, um, l- let's be perfectly honest with you. I mean, when you take into account the the awful situation with um, with George Floyd and the seismic ev- events subsequent to that, and quite r- quite rightly seismic events um, su- uh, su- subsequent to that, then the covid then the COVID nineteen situation. This really is. It's a difficult time to just kind of almost. Exist. It's, it's almost like a dreamlike state, isn't it? It's, it's we're, all, we're all dealing with it differently. There's all various different impact factors depending on where you are in the world and what you do in your life. But um, just describe to me kind of how you, you're kind of coping with it, mate, because it, it must be particularly kind of challenging.
1: Yeah, it is, man. Um, it's it's uh, so many different layers to it, um, you know, from... Uh, personal standpoint, from um, where I stand within the cycling industry standpoint, where I stand within uh, Zwift, you know, my my, my, my work, my livelihood. Um, I also have a foundation. So there's a lot of things that I have to balance that, you know, a lot of people are not privy to. Um, and then of course your family which is the utmost important you got to make the, make sure they're taken care of right because yeah. if they're not taken care of everything is gonna fall apart so um, it's, it's been a bit challenging you know we went to the mall <laughs> we went to the mall this weekend for the first time we actually yeah. went out as a family into a location you know i mean I' We've we've made conscious efforts to get them out of the house and just like maybe go for a drive up the coast and sure. stuff like that just to get out of the house. But this was the first time we actually left as a family and went to a physical location, and it was surreal still to me to see everyone walking around in masks. You know, it, nah. it just it didn't feel right, and it felt like it was out of a movie. And I don't want to accept it. I guess, in so many yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, you know, it's uh, but it was important, I guess, at the end of the day that. My kids understand that. Look, we are li- you're living in history right now. It's not like any other day. This will yeah. be in history books. Your kids, God willing, if you have them, will be talking about COVID nineteen and. 2019, 2020, or whenever we got it, 2020, March yep, of 2020. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, uh, it, you don't really sometimes sit back and realize, like, wait a second, this is history that we're living in and we're a part of this. And it will be in textbooks very soon. And people will be talking about it for decades to come. So I think it's been important for us to just kind of sit back and, 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 just take it all in and 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 figure out what we can do to be better, what we can do to be safe and and uh, just teach our kids the the best way to move around and my and my whole thing is just using your best judgment you know what yeah. I mean I'm not saying you have to put on a hazmat suit I'm not even saying you have to wear a mask in the, the entire time use your best judgment and and that's what I see people are not
0: doing i I think that that's a really interesting point mate isn't its is you' got to take a step back something sometimes and just without oversimplifying it. Simplify it. You know, it's a, it's sure. common sense. I mean, uh, and when you look at what's fed, you know, fed to us via the media. I mean, they have a big part to play in this. The way the way we perceive the world is through this, this quite often distorted lens of of the media. But sometimes you've got to. I mean, I, I find myself um, filtering the news, n- not filtering it. Being selective with the news, but filtering just the quantity of news that I kind of see. I like to I like to know what's going on, but yeah. to properly rationalise and cope with what's going on, yeah. I can't totally immerse myself in it. I need to just back away from it whilst keeping an eye on what's going on. Um, but at the same time, just use kind of common sense. And and, and I like very much like you actually, Rasan. I, I kind of stepped away. Initially, during COVID-19, I, I, me and Holly were just locked down completely. I did my one hour a day, which I was allowed to do. And very much like you, on Monday, I went to the mall just down the road three miles away for the very first time. And it was kind of odd. But yeah, it, but, but yeah so I've been quite conservative in, in, in that regard. But yeah, you, I think to be able to process this whole situation, and the, the, the way the world is at the moment in its kind of tumultuous state, you, you do need to take a step back, take a deep breath... And and try and apply, you know, common mm-hmm. sense and kind of a normal reason to this, don't you? Is for, for you to be able to kind of quantify it and rationalize it properly.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what I did. Um, you know, <laughs> short story: we had we had tickets to see the Lakers the Thursday that the NBA was canceled right um and and that was a big disappointment it was going to be you know laker tickets are expensive so it was something we saved up for we we're going to go as a family it's five of us you know and and uh, we're all looking forward to it and then the wednesday before they canceled the nba season so that means thursday we're not going to the game so from that point forward the news media and what you see in popular news was just like come kind of like bombarding you with all this information and i remember someone asking me are you talking to your kids about it? And I said, no, not right now. Because I wanted to make sure I'm the the gatekeeper of what goes into their brain. And what we were seeing in the beginning, I thought was just, it was too overwhelming. We didn't know all the facts. It was just like, they were going to be bombarded with all this fear and fear, you know, you know what that does to you. It it produces all sorts of negative things within your psychological. So I decided for like, honestly, for the first two weeks, they didn't watch any news. I didn't talk about it. They knew something was going on. And then as I felt more comfortable and more, uh, I guess you could say, up-to-date and knowledgeable about the situation, we started to open up about what was going on and differentiating. So they can differentiate what was right and what was wrong, at least from our point of view as a parent. And yeah. so that's how we went about it.
0: Because you got three daughters. Uh, yeah. So what's the, what's the age range again?
1: Uh, so we have a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 16-year-old.
0: Okay. so so they're going to know what they're going to have they're going to have iPhones or whatever they're going to have access to the web so how did you how did you kind of monitor that kind of situation yeah you
1: know that's hard (laughs) to monitor (laughs) yeah that's hard to monitor Uh, however man these kids I don't think they're too interested in the news these days, you know, yeah, know uh, they're, know. they're know. more concerned about, you know, Instagram, TikTok, and everything else that's at their palm. Yeah. Um, uh, and of course that, that stuff is out there as well, but it's coming from, it's coming from an angle of, uh, I think more playfulness versus like cold, hard news. So at their young minds, they're not really looking at it the way we would look at it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it that, but even there, that's a challenge in itself. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, let's let's just rewind a little bit, mate. Let's rewind quite a long time actually. You're you're currently thirty eight, am I right? You're thirty eight, thirty nine years of age. Um, 39 let, let's let's just rewind a little back a little bit what what a, what I'd, I'd like to know and I, I have had a few conversations with you um i think the longest time we spent together was actually at the zwift academy camp um back in 2017 with canyon Tramp, and we mm-hmm. let's, let's be honest we got pretty we got pretty wasted one night didn't we? <laughs> 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 uh, uh, in this because uh, i've got to set the scene because i, I when, when we tell stories uh you have to. I, I like setting the scene without being too boring. But we were in this hotel, weren't we, with the Canyon Shram team and Zwift. I was there when I was working for GCN. You were representing Zwift there. Mm-hmm. And, um, we were filming the finals there, weren't we? Yeah, and, it was
1: uh, in uh, Koblitz.
0: That's it. Complaints just outside Cablens. I bust my rib the night, the day before in a go karting incident, uh, which, <laughs> which we could do another podcast about. Um, so I was told not to drink and take mixed painkillers, but but really it was the best. It really helped, um, and we had a great night chatting. But we were in, I in. Um, Basically, everybody knows about Haribo Suites. This hotel was owned by the founder of Haribo, wasn't he? Yeah. So we had this weird wooden Haribo life-size giant bear next to us in the bar, and there were like bowls of Haribo around. So that's, that, was what, that was what it was like, wasn't it? It was a kind of strange environment. <laughs>
1: It, it was, and I was just telling this story the other day, and no one believed me. And, and I don't know if you remember all the like taxidermy animals he had in his oh, hotel. Yeah. So I pulled up those pictures, just like, man, this guy's crazy. I was like, but it was such a cool hotel. It was in the middle of nowhere. And I was telling a story about you and busting your ribs. I think Kendall Ryan is responsible for breaking your ribs. Um, <laughs> in the go-kart accident yes. and yeah that was that was a that was such a fun night we stayed up to the I don't know how long it was we just had great I, stories fun you had the banana co- costume on
0: that's right oh god yeah I, I was dressed as a banana as well god it gets even more surreal people are going to be listening to this thing what <laughs> were you guys taking something as well as alcohol because this just isn't right but anyway we, we, had a, we, had a, we had a great we had a great chat and you were talking to me about growing up in Los in Los Angeles and you were born in Linwood in, in LA and what I'd like to know Rasan. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you, as a young black kid growing up in Los Angeles, how you ended up getting into cycling. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I'd really like to know. And, you know, yeah, h- how did you end up riding a bike and then being as successful as you were as, as a youngster?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in a house in, in Compton, and, and Lynwood is just the, the city right next door, and that's where the hospital was. So Compton yeah. didn't have a hospital, and for those of you who are listening, uh, you may have heard of Compton, California or not. If you haven't, just look it up. Um, if you watch any um, popular movies, listen to popular music, you're going to hear something about uh, the concrete jungle we call Compton, California. Um, so that's just where my parents settled. You know, uh, my my dad's from Detroit. My mom's from Birmingham. Um, they got together at a very young age, decided at a young age after being married that they were going to leave the South. Um, they rented a U-Haul and they they drove all the way to California. Wow. Uh, the, the funny story is the U-Haul place kept calling, and remember, this is like in the '70s. So, right. uh, the U-Haul place kept calling, like, "Hey, where's our truck?" And my dad's okay, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's coming back." And they literally parked it at a Target and, and left it. And it was like they wanted to better the better their lives, and this is how they got here. Um, and you know, I was the I'm the fourth out of seven children. I have three Whoa. older sisters. Yeah. Okay. And um, my, my dad took to telecommunications. He eventually started teaching in the Compton Unified School District. My mom did as well. She worked with um, students that were coming out of uh, like halfway houses or juvenile hall, which is basically like a, a baby jail for kids under 18. Okay. Um, and my, my mom just always had a passion for helping people and uh, especially young people. And I don't know, man, I was just one of those kids, both parents are working, you have time to do kind of whatever you wanted to do. I was involved in sports, I was running track and field, I was playing football, I was really good at baseball, I was a catcher, Um, I even made like all city as a free safety playing football, I thought that was going to be my passion and where I ended up was a professional football player. Um, but I was also, you know, running the streets at the same time. And, mm. and when I say running the streets, I wasn't robbing people or, you know, uh, running into people's houses or anything like that. Just kind of the, the childish, ignorant things that you do as, as an adolescent. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And just one day, man, at school, uh, the story's kind of long, but I'm going to dumb it down for you. One day at school, um, I used to ditch a lot I used to never ever go to class I actually hated school to be honest with you and uh, we call it in
0: the UK we call it bunking off we call it bunking off yes I
1: used used, used to bunk off all the time and this time I was like "Ah, all right, I'll go to class and I end up going to class and uh, it's the it's the it's the very story of the boy who cried wolf so I'm sitting in class and I had to use the restroom and the teacher at the time Mr. Reggie Garman who was an English teacher and I raised my hand and he said, yes, Rassan, how can I help you? I said, Mr. Garmin, I have to go to the restroom and his thing was, yeah, right. You do everything under the sun to get out of class. Yeah. Sit your butt down. Okay. But this time I really had to get out. I really needed to go to the restroom and he didn't allow me. So with my frustration, I threw one of those uh, erasers from the chalkboard at him.
0: Oh no, they're that- kind of big, aren't they? They're kind of tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> And, you know, I was kind of known at times to be a class clown and I threw it in and I, I swear to you, I did not mean to hit him because I knew that would get me in a lot of trouble. But yeah. it did. I guess my accuracy from playing, from being a catcher in baseball was pretty good.
0: <laughs> Served you well. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I hit him dead on in the face and it's like oh, chalk man. lines everywhere and it's a little puff of chalk and the whole class is laughing. And no one told on me. I got away with murder. I left the class. The very next day. Um, my parents are sitting there. So someone did tell on me, but they did it after class. Right. And, um, that's when I was introduced to cycling, man. And this is exactly how he laid it out. He said, you got a good kid. He's going down the wrong path though he's you know he's got a lot of energy he's always into something that's not right uh, there's a couple after school programs that he could be involved in one is golf one is bikes and in my head I said bikes oh my god I would love to ride motorcycles so <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I chose motorcycles Okay. And our bikes, because I thought it was motorcycles. Uh, it wasn't, and it was the velodrome where they had the 1984 LA Olympics. Wow, and right? I okay. was absolutely disgusted, and I remember the day like it was yesterday. I, I walked up to the railing at the top of the track. It was turn one, and I just remember seeing a bunch of white dudes in these funny outfits with <laughs> funny looking helmets and shoes going around, <laughs> and I was like, "Dude, I do not want to do this." And that's literally how I got involved in a sport. It was a wow. form of punishment more than anything. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then a year later, I fell in love with it.
0: Flipping X. So, so, so you didn't want to be there, but obviously you got on a bike at some point. And and it, how long did it take you to kind of actually kind of fall in love with it? Was it kind of begrudging at first? You kind of turned up because you were obliged to, or how yeah. long did it take before you thought actually this is pretty cool? This is actually quite this is this is nice. I like this.
1: So the, the program was twice a week. I, I believe it was like a Monday, Wednesday from four to six, a couple hours. And it was honestly a really, really good program because it taught you, they didn't just throw you on the track. It really taught you about the mechanics of the bike, even how to crash. This was a huge track. It was a 333, had a massive infill. So we would practice like crashing on the uh, on the grass and how to clip in, how to carry your bike on the non-drive side. So everything that, you know, I think today that a lot of newbies don't go through. Yeah. Um, so I had a really good foundation. And one thing that I, I, I did fall in love with before the bike was just hanging out there. It was yeah. the people that were there. That was I was actually starting to look forward to going there That's versus cool. other places. Yeah. Um, and, and that was really cool. Um, and so fast forward a year, I thought once the program was over, I don't have to do it anymore. I got that out of the way. But my dad purchased me a jersey that was $25, roughly, okay. and a bib short. Actually, there yeah. wasn't even bibs, they were just shorts at the time. Yeah. That was maybe about $35. And in his mind, that was a lot of money for a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So once so the program is,
0: was. So this is early nine. This is what's this, like 93, 94? This is like
1: something? 95. Yeah.
0: 95. Okay. Yep.
1: Yeah. So once the program was getting ready to start back up, I was like, dude, I'm done. He's like, no, you're not. I just bought you, you know, $80 worth of clothes. You're going back. <laughs> and I, I went back and yeah, he didn't have to tell me to go back anymore. I just started to like it. And the defining moment, what happened, I was I was 13 years old and they put me up against an 18-year-old in a match sprint. Right. And keep in mind, this is a 333, really big, beautiful track. And um this guy, I believe his name was Mike, and Mike was already a, a national champion um, for the U.S. in track sprinting. And okay, Mike is going to dog me out. He's lead. He's he's leading out going into the last lap, and I and I kept noticing that he would look back over his left shoulder, uh, sorry, right shoulder, to see where I was. I was a little above him on the track, and so even at the age of thirteen, I knew that he was taking his eyes off of me for at least two to three seconds.
0: You obviously got this sense quite early of of, like a craft, like like Yeah, and no one
1: taught me that. You know, it was just innately in me. So uh, everyone's watching and uh, we're, we're coming out of turn, we're entering turn two and I kept telling myself, all right, if he does this in the turn or coming out of turn two, I'm gonna dive down the track once he turns his head. He won't even know I'm there, I'll get a head start. Surely enough, I did it, smoked a guy, and the entire velodrome of coaches was like, wait a second, how old are you again? And uh, about about four weeks later, they raised enough money to take me to my first real bike race, which was in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And it was a junior track nationals. And I went there, won about four medals. And from that point, you talking about being hooked. I was hooked. I was like, That's oh, amazing. you get to travel, you get to win medals. I want to do this every day. You know, it was, it was all for me then. So yeah. that was it. it. It's been nonstop since then.
0: I mean, uh, I mean I'm going to, I'm going to ask a blunt question or something. As a black youngster in an essentially white sport at that particular time, you're speaking about it with a lot, with a lot of fondness. What did you, were there any kind of obstacles there? Were you accepted uh, universally yeah. straight away or what no. was, what was it like? Give me a sense of what it was like.
1: Uh, here, here's one story I tell all the time is, you know, um once i really start to get into it now you, not only do you have your 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 backpack to go to school you have this track bag now yeah and and those of you who may not understand track cycling even though it's a single speed bike and you don't really need much you actually need more than what you do when you're riding a road bike cuz you mm. have to have all these different gear pitches and you have to have the tools and you have to have yes, yeah. all these other different things. So, you know, I had my track bag and I had my backpack always going to school. And there were several times that the, the staff or faculty of my school wanted to see what was in my bag. You know, I didn't play yes, sports yeah. for the school. And oftentimes they would ask in front, of, in front of my classmates. And I would say, no, you know, I, I was embarrassed more than anything about the required uniform that we use, right? The, the chamois. Uh, yeah. The pointy shoes, the pointy helmet. And I didn't want them to know what I was doing. So I would defy the staff and they would say, all right, go to the principal's office. Principal will Jeez. say, let me look in your bag. I would let him look in the bag or look, let the principal look in the bag because we we're in a closed environment that was safe for me. Yeah, um, But often I got suspended maybe four or five times from school because I was defying about letting the staff look in my bag in such an Jesus. open space. Um, And so that went on for about three years, man. Um, I remember living in LA um, and I used to, this is when I got into road cycling, I would cover my jersey with a t-shirt and put basketball trunks over my my shorts when I left the hood. Because (laughs) I didn't want them, yeah, I didn't want them seeing me in tights. And then once I got out of the hood, I would take it off, roll it up, put it in my back pocket and go ride and do whatever I did. And when I returned, I would put it back on and roll, roll, back to my house. Was that?
0: Um, why was that, was? that because you were embarrassed that you were doing oh yeah, maybe mid-time. what's what's perceived as maybe a white sport? Was, yep. what, what was? The, it's kind of weird, inverse kind of racism. It's strange, isn't it? But that's you've obviously been conditioned in a way that you felt that you were maybe betraying your kind of I don't know uh, your own kind of roots. Would that would that be right, mate? I mean, it's it's, it's odd, but it's it's I, it's I understand odd. it. Yeah,
1: yeah. To a, to a certain extent, you have to learn. Um, how do I say it? You kind of have to learn how to play the game, you know. Like yeah. you, and and in, in our neighborhood, we're, if you grew up in Compton, you're frowned upon if you say ambulance and not ambulance. You know what I mean? Right, if okay, you pronounce okay. the words correctly, if you enunciate your words, if you speak articulately, you're looked at funny. So you have to learn how to kind of like walk that fine line between fitting in, yep. so you're not picked on, so you're not um, looked at as an outcast, but also doing the things that, you know, you need to do so you can progress in life. So it's a, it's a fine line. And and that was just one of those things. You're like, you know what? Cycling is my thing, but for now, this is what I have to do to make sure Sure. I can get, I can still go to school and not be bullied. Or I, you know, I can still hang out at the park and play basketball on the weekends. There is, it's a really interesting dynamic, but you know, and, and I'm not the only one dealing with this there. I'm sure there's people dealing with this right now. And it's, it's just what we have to do. And unfortunately I don't think that will change for a long time because in so many words, and this may sound really bad, but a lot of people in the inner city are ignorant and until they're educated, And then I'm not talking about book smarts. I'm talking about just educated with like just life and how to get through life and how to progress through life. You're going to have that. And that was just one of those things I had to deal with.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, there's that – it's a kind of a very insular mentality, and and vast majority of the time, mate, it's the fault of no one. It, it's a product of a certain kind of upbringing. It's the 100%. product of a certain environment. It's a product of uh, of, the, of the limitations of which people are ex- kind of exposed to, and it's very sad. Absolutely.
1: Yes, but it absolutely.
0: is, it's a uh, like you say, mate, that there's no quick quick fix on that one. That is something that's going to take generations. It's going to take, you know, it's going to take good governance. It's going to take perhaps you know, um, a different change of leader, you know, we, it, there's, there's so many facets to that particular part of it. But but moving on in relation to your own story, and I'm doing this chronologically, Rasan, because it's just a little bit easier for me, Because if,
1: if that's okay, well, in terms me, of- Let me tell you, let me tell you, sorry to cut you off, let me tell you when no, it no, changed no. and I think this is important. So I, I I won some races, I then I won my first national title at 15.
0: So yeah, 2000, far- I believe it's 2000.
1: Well, this is as a junior. Uh, ah, right. okay. ninety ninety eight. So from So from 94 to 98, I started to compete. My first one came in 98 in San Diego. And from there, now the U.S. national team is looking at you. They're like, oh, okay. A little black nugget nice. can move, right? And I yeah, ended up yeah. going to Argentina. And I, I won a couple medals at the Junior Pan Am Games. And the sports section of LA Times did an article on me. And that was the turning point for me becoming comfortable because now I'm in high school and yeah. the kids in high school saw it. So up to that point, I was still embarrassed. I yeah. still didn't want anyone to know what I was doing. Yeah. But they, these kids from the hood were so excited that they could not believe that someone who looked like them, come from where they come from, got on an airplane and went thousands of miles away to a foreign country to race a bike. From that point forward, it was like a monkey was off my back. Yeah. It was like, they actually think it's cool. Why yeah. don't I think it's cool? And, you know, that helped me out.
0: That that's, that was it. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. And then you just went on from, again, You the question I was going to ask you was exactly what you just said. You went on then to a hell of a lot of success. I mean, throughout your career, you've been a 10 times American champion. But then you went on to win on the road from the track, didn't you? The National mm-hmm. Crit Championships. As well as the road championships as a junior in 2000, and then you won the amateur crit championships, but as a senior crit champs, as a junior, didn't you as well? Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah, amazing. So, so it's, it's a, I mean, let's let's talk about that because that that must have been yet another kind of watershed, another breakthrough for you as well um, on, yeah. on on the road. Because I mean, track and road, as as we know there's similarities there's a crossover but the road is even bigger isn't it you know what I mean it's another world entirely isn't it
1: it is yeah and I didn't know anything about road cycling for a couple years after finding cycling yeah and you know there's a lot of people I could owe success to Um, but if we want to just talk about the team I was on then it was it was ran by a guy named John Ward Um, okay John founded Team years before Mercury, so he he ended up putting me on Mercury Cycling Team, which turned into Mercury Viatel, which turned into maybe something else, and they had ambitions to race in the Tour and whatnot. Um, he hired guys like Jan's Courts, uh, Fabrizio Guidi, um, uh, Gord Fraser was on that team, Chris Horner. So uh,
0: I, I raced those guys in two thousand. I did Tour Langkawi and a couple of the races with exactly, those guys. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so I was fortunate enough. The, that I was around him. He, he's a California native. He 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 saw my talent and he put me on the team at a very young age, 16 years old. Wow! So I raced as man. a junior with him, and then even when I turned 17, he started throwing me into these bigger races with the pros. And I was often the the sweeper for guys like for for the big sprinters. So someone sure. like Gore Fraser, who's a proven winner, I had to be a sweeper, which I learned a tremendous amount of things about how to race criteriums following yep. him around. Uh, also, Baden Cook was on the team, which I absolutely loved racing. Oh, with Oh yeah,
0: him. yeah, uh, of course, yeah. Green jersey yeah. in the Tour de France, for God's sake!
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was a that was amazing experience getting able to uh, break bread with him, and he took a liking to me, and we, we had a really good relationship when we were racing together. Uh, but anyway, so he took me to this race down his Grove, um, and all I knew that I was getting on a plane going to Chicago to do a bike race. Yeah. So Saturday night. They had a pro am event. I'm an amateur. The other guys are pros, so they they, they allowed the pros and the amateurs to race together for like just a quick, um, kind of like a, probably like 70 kilometers crit, and it was kind of to get the the city ready for the big show on Sunday. Okay. And in my head, the big show was the pros. You know, our our uh, our past CEO of USA Cycling, Derek Bouchard Hall, uh, was the the big name back then on Mercury, and he was going for the title. And so, they were racing at 5 p.m., and the amateurs were racing at, like say, 1. And okay. I got up, got ready for the race, left my hotel. I never forget that morning because I didn't need an alarm clock. I ate the perfect breakfast. I got <laughs> on my bike. I rode to the race. I won the race. And Whoa. in my head, this is a true story, I thought it was just another race. I had no idea it was a national championship Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I remember crossing the line <laughs> and hearing over the PA and your new, you know, elite national criterion champion is. I was like, what? Wait a second. I literally That's just thought so it was funny. another race. I thought the race was I thought the championships was just for the pros only. Yeah. So yeah, that was uh that was pretty amazing. Um being still a junior and and beating all the you know, the the elite guys that some of them were just coming off of pro contracts, some of them were, you know, really good um and that was a yeah definitely a defining moment in my life
0: i mean at that time i mean the same year as i said i'm just looking at your results here for that year just your wins you know national crit champs for juniors national road champs for juniors and then of course the amateur criterium champion you later went on in 2008 we'll talk about that a bit later the u.s pro champs for the, the, the crit championships in terms of representing the national team um did any opportunities present themselves as a junior at that particular time as well
1: yeah as a junior you know i think it's hard to deny when you're one of the best um and I, you know i was i was always kind of there 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 and then all of a sudden one year you just kind of take off and yeah. that 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 99 season into 2000 was a year i kind of just i took off and it got to the point where you, you were a bike racer you know when like when you're on you're on and at times you could be off but your competitors know that you've been on for the last five races. So yep. they, they're they already checked out. They're going for second, you know, um, and I figured that out at a young age. It's like, dude, I really have these dudes psyched out already. Like we're, <laughs> we're we're signing our paperwork to enter the race and they're saying, oh, body's here. I guess we're going for second. And you're like, wow, I've, I've never had that <laughs> attitude. You know, like how, why do you even show up? And so that's when I really started to pay attention to the psychological effect of just like you know using that poker face or yeah. sometimes showing that that you're suffering, but you're really not you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know just kind of learning that other side of the trade because it really comes down to that it's It's definitely a physical sport, but there's a lot of mental uh a mental aspect to it that I think I learned at a at a young age which helped me progress through the sport. Because I mean, if you look at any of my tests, I don't test too well, you know. It's just what it is. But I had a knack for understanding what was going to happen sometimes before it even happened in a bike race. Yeah. And that allowed me to, to be such kind of like what they call a crafty sprinter, you know.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I, I think, I think there's, there's so much to be said about that. I think one of the best, another example of that would be Mark Cavendish. You know, he mm-hmm, he's p- pretty much always put out pretty. Resp- I, I'm not going to. I don't know the numbers, but numbers that wouldn't put him at the elite level of the sport. You know, in mm-hmm. in kind of uh, in testing back in the day. But it was only Rod Ellingworth who had faith in him because he had something else. He had another kind of element to him, and it mm-hmm. was an and it was a and it was an intelligence. It's a kind of innate intelligence about how to ride a bike, where to position, when to go. Because clearly, I mean, you've although you, you you're kind of very modest about your engine. You've silly got a big explosive engine at the end. You, you can deliver when you kind of need to. But yeah. um, just delivering 12, 13, 1400 watts for, for 10 seconds, it isn't as simple as that, is it? It's, it's far more complex. Uh, and arguably sprinting, when you look at all the disciplines within sport, is the most complex, and it's the most nuanced when it comes to tactics. Uh, and to have that kind of craft that you clearly learn from a very young age, it's obviously equipped you exceptionally well. And I think that's why... That's one of the many reasons I I love this sport so much, mate. Not just the the sense of community, the people that you meet, the feeling of freedom you get. It's mm-hmm. just the, the the intellectual side of of racecraft is fascinating, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it it is, man. And you hit you you're spot on. What Cav did in his heydays, I mean, I studied this guy. From the time I saw him on TV winning bike races because he didn't really look like a cyclist anyway, you know, at the end of the day. He didn't look like your traditional cyclist, I should say. And um, some, some people may take offense to that, but there's a, you know... Cycling has been going on for a hundred years. So there's a kind of a, a wave of what your traditional cyclists look like. Just it's like- a kind a of a wave, template, like, isn't
0: there? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, template, what yeah.
1: your basketball player would look like. So when exactly. you see someone like Muggsy Bose, who played in the NBA and he was only five foot tall, you're like, it's no way he's an NBA player. But he d- he, d- you know, just totally flipped that upside down. I think Cav was kind of the same way. And to your point, like he was so crafty, man. And he was good with a lead out he was good without a lead out he i mean, and I really enjoyed studying him and i I use a lot of how he used his patience in my bike yeah. racing because I was still racing at the time, so yeah, yeah. Uh, that he's a he's a very good example of that next layer and that next element that you need to be a bike racer yeah, perfect yeah, definitely
0: i mean we're gonna um Move on, if you don't mind me asking. You talk about studying. We're now going to move on to a – I'm um, not, not too sure, Rossan, if you've listened to any of these podcasts before. Um, we have a quiz section, um, but we don't have a jingle for the quiz. I think we, we might need one, but I'm going to ask you in a few seconds' time three questions, mate, about your own career, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to pause it here because it's time for the quiz. Got three questions for you here, Rossan. Um about your career and and little facts about yourself. Okay, so first up we have, of course, it is question number one. Are you ready? I'm ready. Good stuff, mate. Okay. On stage one of the 2008 Tour of Britain, you finished fifth in the bunch sprint that decided the stage in London. Okay. Can you name two of the riders that finished in front of you on that stage?
1: You yeah. Were, there were some,
0: some names, mate. There were some names, some big names.
1: Yeah. Pataki. Yep. Won the stage. Correct. Um, and was Goss in front of me? Gossy? Matt Goss? No, you,
0: you put, you put Gossy away, mate. You put oh, away, yeah. <laughs> nice.
1: I <laughs> almost put Pataki away. But uh, there was a – oh, Ben Swift.
0: Nope. Yeah. Nope. Nope. No, you got, uh, got one more chance, mate. Okay, one more chance. chance.
1: It was a uh, uh, big fella from, from a big Garmin. From Garmin was in front of me.
0: Uh, yeah, he, he may or name? may not. He may or may not have won Paru Bay.
1: Yeah. Oh, come on! <laughs> I just saw him when we were in uh, South Africa together for Team Dimension Data Camp, and I was making fun of the kids because they didn't know who he was, uh, Magnus. That's Backster. the one, mate.
0: Two points. Yeah, yeah. Good lad. Yes. Well done. So the other riders were a couple of Brits, actually. So you had Pataki who won it. Rob Hales was second. Um, Maggie was third. Dean Downing. Dean uh, Downing. That's
1: what I meant So, you know, it's funny. Uh, in the U turn, coming into the finish with about a K to go, I was in really bad position. So, typical crit guy, hot route up the inside, make up. About twenty spots, <laughs> and yep. uh, back then there's no disc brakes. I'm rolling campy, so the brakes really didn't work. And okay. I run, I run square into Pataki and oh, into the no, U-turn. Man. Literally, like he's turning, and my front wheel is is, is uh, going straight into his body. Jeez, and I boy. hit him. He looks at me. He cusses me out in Italian. And I just kind of shrug my shoulders. And uh, now it's a, it's a K to go, and, and I'm lining <laughs> up. And in my head, I'm like, dude. I could be, I could literally win this race. I feel so good. And one thing I learned, because that was my first step back in Europe in a long time, patience is a virtue. I went entirely too soon and I was fighting to win going like 60 Ks an hour. And I went from like third spot to fifth spot in no time. It couldn't move after that. And I was kicking myself like, ah, patience. I couldn't get this, you know? But it it was, that was fun.
0: That was good. I, I, I was looking back through results. I thought I'd kind of yeah quiz you on that. But well done, mate. So you got you got two two points there. So a good start. Now we're going to move on now to question number two. Okay, um, right. As of now, Rasan, how many kilometers have you ridden on Zwift? Okay, I'm gonna. I've got I've got three choices for you. Okay, is it? No, I've been on the app and checked you out, and I've ju- I didn't realize I didn't follow you on Zwifter. Sorry about that. I do follow you now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so here we go. Is it A, 6,270 kilometers? Is it B, 6,293 kilometers? Or is it C, 6,301 kilometers?
1: What, what was B again?
0: So B was 6,293 kilometers.
1: Um... I was just on it last night, and I, I think B sounds about right, or, or it could be. I'm going to go with my intuition, B. Correct. Woo-hoo. Flipping
0: <laughs> heck, mate. That's good. Wow. That's good. Yeah, I, I, I wrote
1: I, it last I, night, and I was paying attention to it, so that's perfect Good
0: time. stuff. Maybe <laughs> you kind of subliminally knew that you may be tested by Matt on that. So, well <laughs> done. So, 100% so far. We're moving into the final, the final uh, question, and you can just relax a little bit. So, the tension's still on. The pressure's still on. Okay. Question three. As we've already mentioned, you won the US Pro Crit title back in 2008. But what was your winning time? Okay. Was it – you've got three choices again. Was it A, <coughs> 2 hours 21, 17? Was it B, 2 hours 21, 21? Or was it C, 2 hours 21, 29? Oh, that's <laughs> <good time. laughs> Not that you really would have been paying attention to it, but, you know, some people do. I certainly ah. never paid attention to my winning times in road races. Maybe no, TT. not
1: at all. Uh, man, I'm just going with A because it's the first one. I knew I know it was over two hours, yeah. but down to the second, that's a tough one. Okay.
0: Uh, is that your final answer?
1: Oh, you're making me second guess. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'll stick with A
0: it's it's incorrect i'm afraid the answer is b you won the title in two hours 21 minutes 21 seconds so <sighs> you've, um you got yeah you got two questions out of three which is pretty solid so a round of applause please. <laughs> Thanks, look at that that's that's like a proper studio audience we had there mate so well done <laughs> well done on the quiz um mate it's been been cracking! It's almost like we should have scheduled in a two or three hour podcast and broken it up into parts, mate. Um, but let's let's move on a little bit to um, slightly more recent times. Let's, okay. Actually, let's leap leapfrog um, to 2010 uh, because this year it is the 10th anniversary of uh, your foundation. Um, the Bahati Foundation now can you which I know is a very very important part of what you do um, just in it you know what you do in life and can you for anybody who's listening in and hasn't heard of it doesn't can you just explain what it's about and why it means so much to you
1: yeah so I was I was racing in in Europe as a junior with the national team and also as an under 23 and um, I remember like it was yesterday doing a stage race in Switzerland and being in the mountains and being dropped and really realizing how beautiful it was, um, because I wasn't in the Peloton holding on. Right. So <clears throat> I was dropped off the back with another kid and, uh, we just kind of tootled our way to the finish and we hung out at the hotel and he started asking me like, what do you want to do with cycling when it's over? Mm-hmm. Because that day was so hard for us. He's like, this is not for us. You know, yeah. this is not for us. <laughs> okay. And, um, I said, dude, honestly, you know, I've been racing in Europe now with the junior national team and now under 23 going on five years and I'd never see anyone that looks like me. And it took me back to my days of riding the track where there was a bunch of kids that looked like me and like, why didn't they continue to push forward? And, you know, I just kind of wish they had the opportunities that I started to get when I was younger. Um, So that's where like just that fire in me wanted to go back to the inner city and start finding kids that were better than me. Um, and that's how the foundation was launched. And we started off on three principles with the mission of, um, Inspiring the youth in inner cities across the world or across the United States, actually, through education, music, and sports, and specifically in that order, because of course, with your education, you can have no legs, no arms, but as long as your brain works and you have a heart and you're breathing, you can do a lot of great things. So, education is extremely important. Uh, Music was the first thing I ever learned to do. My dad was a musician and taught me how to play saxophone. Wow. Uh, That taught me a lot of discipline. Um, I learned how to play my scales, my chromatic scales before I was even six years old. Um, oh,
0: that's yeah. amazing.
1: And so music has been a huge part of, of my life. And then sports, of course. And I, I specifically said sports because, as we know, cycling is not for everyone. It's one of the toughest sports to do. Oh, and yeah. Um, but I do understand that sports in general can really transcend your life. So those three things are what we focus on. We have other initiatives right now. And, yeah, we've been doing it. For ten years, it was ten years in March, and I can't believe it's been a decade.
0: That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I mean, what I mean, I know you actually raced for the Bahati Foundation. Yet you had a race team. Now you're racing yeah. again for a different team. It's Time Factory, powered by uh, Velo Pasadena. So, but you're still very much involved in the foundation, aren't you? On, a, on I guess, on a on a day to day basis. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, so the the team, the idea about the team was I really wanted to spread our mission across the United States as fast as possible, and at the time I was still racing. I said, "What better way to do it than to have like these moving billboards, you know, racing their bikes?" And that idea led to a bigger idea with becoming a pro team, which wasn't the idea at first. (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, And yeah, there's a there's definitely a story there that we don't have to touch on today, but um, yeah, started the team. Hired some big names. Team fell apart, uh, but the mission of the foundation was still the foundation. You know, like sure, yeah, a wall fell down. You know, backyard was destroyed, but the foundation itself was still there. Yeah, um, and and just for for reference, uh, Velo Pasadena is, is a sponsor. So right now, I have Methods to Winning, which is a, a um, it's a for-profit organization, and our goal within the sport is to bridge the gap. Between all the different clubs and all the different racers within Southern California that are disconnected, uh, yeah. meaning, uh, as an example, the cycling group out of Chelsea is not hanging out with the cycling group out of South London. Okay. My job yeah. and what we're doing with methods to winning is to bridge that gap. You right. know, okay. To make sure, look, we're all the same. The, yeah. the, the, the 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 hardworking guy on this side of the block. Could buy the ten thousand dollar bike just as much as the guy in Chelsea can buy the ten thousand dollar bike. He may not be able to do it in one credit card swipe. He may have to save for six months, but he can do it. And we're all in it, we're all in it together. And that's kind of like one of the things we focus on. So we do community events where we just bring people together. You know, and sometimes it's on the bike, sometimes it's off the bike, um, and it's, it's just all about learning each other um, through 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 the sport of cycling. So the bike is the vehicle. Yeah. get us to a place and we, we break bread and, and and have good times.
0: Um, I was just looking uh, before uh, we came on air came on air started to record this pod. I was looking at the Bahati Foundation website, and if anybody's interested, head over there. It's bahatifoundation.org. You can find it there. Uh, and looking at your uh, partner sponsors, I know you're an ambassador for Giant Bikes. They're they're involved. Zwift, unsurprisingly, involved as well. Um, one one organization, well not one organization that's there as well, is the LAPD police force. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that's just, if you don't mind me saying, I think it's a really interesting one, but a very, very important one, because, you know, um, understandably, the police are getting exceptionally bad rapping in the United States at the moment. Um, (laughs) Big time. um, You know, big time. Um, And there's calls for them to be defunded across the board by various organizations. And uh, there's a lot of anger. And um, it's interesting that they're on there, mate. They've obviously been on there for a while. Um, Can you explain the relationship that you have? Because, you know, you can't. Whatever you say, whether you like the police or you don't, you you know you can't foster a proper safe community without police involvement. And it's about the Absolutely. police learning just as much as you. Um, um, but in the in the current climate, has that relationship been strained, or have you found that it's been something that's helped?
1: Uh, it's, it's it has definitely not helped. Um, I yeah. get a lot of I get a lot of negative comments right. about that relationship. Yeah.
0: I hope you don't, Didn't mind me asking, mate. Well, I thought it was quite pertinent at the time. You know,
1: no, n- not at all. I think it's an important question. And and one thing I tell, and and this goes back to what I said earlier about ignorance. Yeah. Um, and one thing I just say, without saying too much, I said that's right. Like all white people are racist, just like all cops are bad. Right. Yeah. So. If you believe that all white people are racist, those are the same people that believe all cops are bad. And we all know that is not true. You literally have to be extremely ignorant to believe that. And and I'd I'd leave it at that. What they do, the relationship we have with them is so impactful because they are dealing, we work hand in hand with them, with families and children that have uh, suffered from losing a loved one of some sort to violence. You know, not 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 natural death, not a car accident. We're talking about there's a kid that we mentor that he's nine years old. He witnessed his dad shoot his mom, his grandmother, and then himself. Jesus. Nine years old. So okay. you you can you can imagine what yep. that does to someone's life witnessing that that he had to step over all of those family members and figure out how to call 911. So what we do with kids like that um, through their program we're delivering bikes to them um, via giant we're giving them helmets we're mentoring them um, we also give them help them out during the holiday season with uh, with toys put under the tree and not only toys are put under the tree, uh, we give them a tree. You know, uh, when I started my family, I thought a Christmas tree was like 20 bucks. Not if you get a nice one, they're not yeah, even close to no, right, 20 definitely. bucks. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's where the idea came. You know what? I want to make sure that, you know, let's just at least jumpstart their holiday season with a tree. That's a big yeah. savings. If you can save them a hundred bucks yeah. and then that led to the toys and then that led to the bikes, which led to the helmets and locks and lights and everything else that we do. So, Our relationship with LAPD is important. Um, I I won't allow uh, outside negative noise to um, deteriorate what has been established. I have some really good partnerships and also personal relationships uh, with policemen that are doing this on a volunteer basis not because LAPD is saying hey you guys need to volunteer or you need to do this. They're doing this because they care about their community and they care about the people in their community.
0: And I think if you have those if you've already got those links that have clearly been forged over a period of time and most importantly and and as you know mate I I was a police officer for you know over a decade Um, um, and at at times it can be a very difficult job Um, and the police certainly don't always get it right and at the moment they're not getting it right a lot of the time but if you've got a, a, a pre-established relationship with the police, that straight away enables you to give feedback that that can hopefully be two-way, and you can you can if you maintain those relationships, you know they can be exceptionally fruitful. You know it's it's not all bad, and and, I, and I'm sure there are people within there who will listen to you as well. Um, and if you if that relationship can be fostered, I think it it can only be for the good, primarily for the community as well, mate. It's um it's it's very very interesting indeed, and. Uh, I mean, while while we're while we're talking about w- what you're doing now, and it's a question that you know I'm I'm going to ask you again, is it's it's in relation to the cycling industry and where you stand now, and I know you've done quite a lot of interviews recently, um, mm-hmm. understand, understandably, um, but and there's been a lot of companies have come out um, after the death of, of George Floyd and said certain things, you know, you, that could be read on the surface as, posi- as positive. But um, the positive things are very easy to say. Doing something is completely different, isn't it? I mean, what What would you like to see change? I mean, because this is this is going to take a long time, isn't it, to affect any significant change? I mean, in terms of Black voices within the cycling community, you know, mm-hmm. tell us where you, where you think we are now. Obviously, massively underrepresented. Um, but what do you think the way forward is? Ideally,
1: ideally, yeah. Um, Enough of the of the posting of where you stand and like you said it's it's putting it's putting your money where your mouth is, it's actions. Yeah. It's it's going out into the communities, it's understanding the communities, it's um it's uh you know looking at how you could better uh change your hiring practices to yep. allow for those who are qualified to have a position, to have a seat at the table. Not the yeah. little table, the big table. Because yeah. the big table is what makes the decisions for all the little tables. And and that's been that's been overlooked. And I've said this, and I'll use Nelly Nelson-Vell's 1984 Silver Melodist in the sprints for the United States. Um, I'll use him as a perfect example. African-American from New York yep. was at the top of the sport in track cycling for a, at least a decade and a half very smart guy, very witty guy. He deserves a place within either at least USA Cycling. Why he's not there, I don't know, even as yeah. an on an advisory. Um, and I always use him as an example because if you look at the people that are there now, they have been there forever and they just yeah. keep recycling the same people over and over again. So yeah. when you bring in someone that comes from um Uh, a Fortune 500 company and put them in place as a CEO and think they can make change for diversity and inclusion. Um, mm, I'm not sure if that's the right call. Maybe they can, but who are they going to put around them in their team? That's what's going to be important. If they're not putting those people in their team to make change, it's going to be a hard change. Um, Case in point, we can't talk about Uh, I'm going to pick on the company I work for a little bit. We can't talk about how to change our avatars for the black community uh, and and for the black women in the community without talking to the black women in the community. I can't have two white women trying to consult me of how a black woman should look. That's not my position. I can't speak for them. So it's simple things like that where I think companies are still missing the point. They're, yeah. they're missing the point that inclusion is not just, hey, let's hire a black person and put them here. All right, check that off the box. It's really including people in these larger conversations of how things can change. Yeah. Um, so we have a long way to go yeah. um, from, from the head all the way down to the tail. And I think the conversations definitely help because it, it, it enlightens people. The next step is what actions can we take after the conversation, which is going to be the most important thing. You know, so. I, I think,
0: yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I, I, it's funny because it's easy to, as, as a as a pretty privileged white white guy, I've, I've I've lived a kind of I've had my ups and downs, but I've 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 never had to overcome anything because the color of, the color of my skin. Um, but I've I've assumed a lot as well, and I, to be quite honest, I think what people need to do is actually make a conscious effort to look elsewhere to to find to find out things for themselves look how different communities look at different um, aspects of different communities well I, mean, I i love art at the moment i've really got since i've turned 50 mate i've got really into art mm-hmm. but what i'm actively doing and it takes a, it takes a, a concerted effort to almost like positively discriminate to make an effort to look at the way other people work look at other people's cultures and i'm actively looking at uh, um, Black artists—it's not something I've ever done before because I'm just a white guy, and it's like it's not in my world. Do you know what I mean? But it's just—I yeah. think people need to actually make an active effort. It's not to be passive about it. It's a concerted effort. It's almost people need to positively discriminate to, to affect change. Otherwise, we're just going to be treading water, aren't we? I mean, that, that's that's my personal experience, mate.
1: And 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 furthermore. The- People like yourself, you just, okay, bam. I, I, I never never looked at black artists before, but now I am because of X. Okay, fine. But now on the bigger scale, I think people who are not across or uh, even conscious of what black people have been through to even get to this point will yep. never understand. So yep. we have to take a lot of steps back to really set the stage for why, we even feel the way we feel today. And yeah. you don't even have to look that far. You know, a lot of a lot of people do go back to slavery. Huge. Had a lot to do with what we do where we are today. And a lot of people say, well, there's no slave owners alive today. And, and I had nothing to do with what my foreparents and my great parents and my great great grandparents did. But everything that happened yesterday is a direct reflect of what happens today. So if you could just find it within yourself to understand what has happened and 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 we all know and maybe you don't know slaves were put all across the world across so you have to think about that all across the world and literally built a lot of what our system is today and so when when black people have these inferiorities to other races or or feel marginalized or disenfranchised and all these other things that happens. It's, it's a, it's a long history lesson up to this point. And so part of the thing that we have to do, and I think right now, because it's not going to be taught in schools, it has to start at home. So like parents out there, white, black, Asian, whatever, teach your kids. It's the information is there. We have the world at our fingertips. It's important that at least they have a, a, uh, uh, a elementary understanding of the past and yep. to why we are where we are, and I think from that point you will start to see change because there will be a level, a conscious level of understanding which is missing right now, and that's why companies can make these kind of these blanket statements, and then now they're probably sitting at their in their board meetings like, okay, we said this, how are we going to do it? Yeah, you I think I mean? it's oh. it, it.
0: We are. It's, it's this next step. I mean, there's there's been all this obviously understandable outrage, and it's very easy to say certain things. That, um, but then actually taking steps to uh, to affect change is, is a completely different. It, it, it's going to take time. It, it's going to and it's going to take some backbone as well. It's going to take people to make decisions that. Previously, might not have been particularly popular, but that's the Absolutely. only way you affect change, mate, is to be disruptive, yeah. and, uh, and and to affect change, you need to be disruptive, and you need to be need to own your decisions, and it's um, we're living in really interesting type dog, not yeah, interesting, but also um, yeah, strange, strange times, but but I think when you look at the groundswell following the George Floyd across across the world and within our own industries and we're looking at at things within the own, our own cycling in, within an own cycling industry but I, I think we are at a point where we can I think for the very very first time I'd like to think we can actually start to affect some change I think the thing I think it's been that seismic, 100% you know and, it, and it's about like you say educating people and making sure, sure that we seize that we seize this moment I guess
1: and I, I truly believe and I'm I, I'm so happy that I'm I'm with Zwift and I believe Zwift is in a unique position to really have a massive impact on what we just talked about. Yeah, I agree. And and, um, there are some good people with level heads that I've consulted with uh, at Zwift um, that understand what needs to happen. And I think I'm going to do my part to keep pushing them. And yeah. they're such in a unique position because it's it's everything that a kid loves, right? No matter yeah. where you come from, no matter how much money you have. Some kid has some sort of video game. Some kid loved to run outside, play basketball, sports. You know, you know what I mean? It's so many positive things that this Zwift platform offers. And I think um, if we can get it right, it, it could be something, again, that's going to go down in the history books and Zwift can raise their hand and, and pat themselves on the back and say, we were at the forefront of making change, but still stand on par of you know the mission of making more people more active more often. It, yeah. it didn't say white people more active, no. it didn't say Asian people more active. It said more people, you know, and all people will yeah. be active. And and I just I'm looking forward to the next steps with Zwift to see how we could really uh, have an impactful uh, journey uh, in, in the next in the next coming months and years.
0: Good stuff. Uh, no, it's, uh, it, I'm, I'm hopeful that they, they can be changed, mate. And um, as you said, I think um, when you look at our industries, Zwift are, are one of the most, um, I think, broad-minded and also quite forward-thinking companies. Um, and, uh, you know, I enjoy my work for them as well. But uh, let's hope they can affect some change because they do have such an enormous community as well where they can actually affect some, ho- hopefully some significant um, shifts in the way people think. But, um Rusan, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. I've got a few more requests from before we kind of wrap up this podcast. Okay. It's been great. It's been, yeah, yeah. I- immensely interesting. Uh, again, we could have spoken for a few more hours, and I'd love to maybe in a few months' time have another bit of a chat with you, if that's Anytime. okay. Um, but we're going to wrap. the. Sh- firstly, do you have a saxophone to hand?
1: Uh, It's put up, but I do have one
0: you do have one, so, okay. okay. Um, so you can't actually blow in it or anything that you can't no. Actually, no you can't okay because I, I was going to ask you to play sax for your own jingle um, but, obviously, <laughs> we, we, but maybe we'll uh, we'll have to sort of uh, do that on, on another occasion mate which will be quite good fun but We've got one more element of the podcast to go. It's a seismic shift away from talking about the very meaty subjects that we've been talking about. Sure. So sorry, if, but I, but I want to end on a light note. And, and I think one thing that does unify everybody, you know, everybody, are snacks. There's no doubt about that, mate, is there? You know, everybody yeah, yeah. loves a snack. And, you know, I don't know you that well, but I know you a bit. I've seen you eating snacks, mate, and I know you do <laughs> like a So it's time... For guess that snack. Guess
1: that snack. Guess that snack. Oh yeah, guess that snack.
0: <laughs> How about that for a jingle, mate? That's nice. Superb. That was Cecile Utrop Ludwig, all the way from um, Denmark, doing that jingle for us. Now, basic. The premise of this of this uh, of guess that snack is exactly what it says on the tin you have to guess the snack. I've got three snacks with me. I'm gonna insert one of the snacks into my mouth. I'm then gonna ask you to guess what it is. But I will tell you first that the snacks we have, we've got three, um, so I'll list the snacks and then in a random order, I'm gonna chew them and based on the sound that they make within my mouth, you have to guess that snack. Sounds good. It sounds good, okay. So what we've got, we've got a packet of Cheetos, okay? Cheese flavored Cheetos, which I know that you'll be very familiar with, being an American. But I managed to get them at our local store. A packet of Cheetos. I've got some toffee-covered, butter-kissed popcorn. Okay. okay. So again, a very, very popular snack in the United States. Um, and I've also got some um, some mini pretzels as well. Okay. Okay. So uh, you can just hear just hear them in the bowl there, making quite an attractive sound. So. I'm gonna start off with one of these snacks. I'm gonna give it a crunch and just got to do your best to deduce, Rossan, which All snack right. it is. We're gonna start off with snack number one. It's going in now. Just popping it in. What snack is this?
1: That's definitely a Cheeto.
0: Oh, mate.
1: No! No. No. no! mate, it's a, oh God,
0: it's a pretzel. Oh, oh, I thought no. the pretzel would be a little more soft in, in the crunch. Oh. These, just another one. Just this, this is another pretzel. Just so you can get your ears around this one. Mm. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry, mate. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's move on. Not a great start. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> honest feedback. Honest feedback. You got zero percent so far. But let's move on. <laughs> two snack Snack number two. It's going in. Here we go, mate.
1: Ah, I'm going to go with the popcorn.
0: Oh, no, that was mm. a Cheeto. Come
1: on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Here, we, here we go again. Yeah, that was a Cheeto, mate. It still sounds like popcorn to me. So, look, this is a popcorn. I mean, just just for the, obviously, I'm afraid you can't redeem yourself now. Yeah, I can't no redeem Spare myself. snacks. But here, just for the record, is a popcorn.
1: Man, what kind of popcorn is that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you would have to speak to the referee. you would have to speak to Nile, our referee. So I'm, I'm very, very sorry, Sam, that you scored. Uh, well, I tell you what, this is the twelfth podcast we've done, and that, that was the worst score. I guess
1: that's me. Hey, I already told you I don't test well.
0: <laughs> I didn't realize it extended the snacks, mate. But anyway, mate. This has been an, an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for getting up so early oh, all I'm the way doing, across nine o'clock. Well, it's just 20 past 10. We've gone on far longer than we normally do, but purely because that was a really, God, I got a bit of popcorn stuck in my throat then. It's been a really great chat, uh, Rahsaan, and, um I've
1: enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And um, I'm sure a lot of people really enjoy what you had to say. Uh, no wonder you do public speaking, mate. You're a, a wonderfully eloquent speaker. You speak exceptionally you. well. Um, and... Um, yeah, hopefully once this COVID nineteen has, has settled down, me and Holly will come across to LA and we can hang out again and have some drinks. that drink will soon. be amazing.
1: Yeah, and do I'll some reminiscing, look mate. To that. But
0: uh, yeah, well, take care, and um, I'll catch up with you very soon. And thanks again, mate. Hey,
1: thanks, mate.
0: After a few weeks off, it's time for us mad, 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 us mad, mad, mad. First up is this from Paul Nicholson. And bear in mind, I have not read these at all. I've got somebody off to sift through uh, social media for me. So, the first time I've seen it. uh, Paul Nicholson, what song do you feel the absolute urge to sing uh, whenever you hear it? Um, Dancing Queen by Abbott, without a shadow of a doubt. Michael George, is Daniel Oss really more cool than you? He is. It's a fact proven by science. Gareth at The Red Machine has asked, have you tried the Cherry Bakewell or Marmalade or Strawberries and Cream Digestives? No, I haven't. So they're around. So I, probably, I do normally pop to Poundland most days, actually, for at least two or three hours, just mooch about. So I'll probably pop in there and check them out. So they do sound gorgeous. The French Tickler, a regular uh, on, uh, on Twitter. Hi, Matt. Do you think those massage guns could be adapted to help to, to make eating lollipops? Dib dabs more efficient? What a strange question, but um, I guess so. You could basically take the knobbly bit out that you do your thighs with, stick a stick a lolly in the end or a bit of licorice, and twizzle it into the into the dab dab bit, couldn't you? But you'd have to be quite careful because they're quite it's quite a lot of energy that passes through through those things when they vibrate when they vibrate at speed because the whole bag could explode, couldn't it? Covering you in um, in sherbet dip. Lee Burgess Alan Partridge or David Brent oh what a cracker a question oh um oh that's god that's a good question can you, can you imagine, though, if men could have babies and Alan Partridge and David Brent had a kid together? That's it's the kid that I'd, I'd want to sort of make a show about. And then I'd watch that to be perfectly honest with you. Ed Hornby, punch in the face or a kick in the spuds? What a wonderful question. Um, probably kick in the spuds as long as it wasn't too hard or a punch in the face was more of a, a kind of tickle, really. I'm not a violent man. Steve Omerod, rich tea or ginger nuts? Ooh, another corking question. Two absolute classics uh, in the world of biscuits there. I'd probably go for a rich tea. A rich tea, but you've got to be careful with the dunk. Uh, ginger nuts, you can dunk for a lot longer, but they still do have an optimum kind of point where you've got to remove them from the liquid. I think it's about t- between 15 and 20 seconds, depending on the temperature of the water or the liquid. Rigged, RG... RJ Gibb. If you could be in your prime again and race with the pros... are you saying I'm not my prime, blimey. And race with the pros at any event in the calendar, what would it be? A monument, a classic, a legendary stage of a grand tour? Ooh, that's another corking question, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, one event in the calendar, I, I'd, I'd like to do, or probably like to do a uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, to be perfectly honest with you, because I think back in the day, that would have suited me. So Liège-Bastogne-Liège, I think I'd do. Or... A mountain stage in the tour that finished up outdoors—something iconic uh, like that. Stop, Otshaw, sure. Matt. When does a chipolata become a sausage? We need some leadership here on the rules, please. Specify girth. <laughs> That's another cock When does a chipolata become sausage? I do believe um, that there is a, a famous scroll, uh, a document, which is lodged in a little museum in northern Tuscany with all the details on. Um, uh, now, I've heard tell. Uh, of, of the measurements, but they're too sacred for me to to uh, to me to give away on this podcast. But thanks for asking. Thank you so much to the literally tens of you who got your questions in. And if you want a question included on the next round of Ask Matt, use the hashtag Ask Matt and at me and Sigma Sports on the usual channels. Don't forget, you can get 40% off Cliff Bar Energy Bars and 25% off Blocks for the whole month of July at Sigma Sports so you can stay fueled on those long summer rides. For more information, visit sigmasports.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again to Perry App Gwyneth for the musical jingles on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod, and why not recommend it to your cycling buddies or a council worker up a Cherry Picker, fixing the streetlights, if you see one. Well, thanks very much to my guest, Rassan Bessage. That really was a, a great conversation. Hopefully, I'll catch up with him very, very soon.
1: Hey, Matt, I'm not too happy about how I failed my last test, so I got one for you. I want well, you to guess what snack I'm going to chew.
0: See, so you're going to chew a snack in – nobody's ever done – I suppose so. Go on then, mate. Um,
1: yeah, let's see how good you are. All right, Mr. okay. Tester, Mr. Snacker, you ready?
0: All right, yeah, go all on right. then. Do, you, don't, don't, I don't even get a chalk. Oh, I've just got to totally just guess this. Right. No, you got
1: to go. guess. It's going in
0: now. Okay. Oh, uh, was it a Pringle? Pringle. Yeah. yeah. No one eats Pringles. Was it? Was it a Dorito? Was it a no. Dorito? <laughs> no. Was it a popcorn? <laughs> <laughs> Give Your us one f- more guess. Did, was it a Reese's All right. Pieces?
1: All right, you gotta listen to the crunch. You ready? Okay. I just gave you a hint. Crunch.
0: Oh, okay. Gee, I've just. Crunch. Uh. What? Oh, was it a a um, crunchy nut cornflake
1: go ahead hit that buzzer again <laughs> what was it what is it it's it's um, cashews very oh, nice cashews.
0: cashews oh I was thinking of a, of a of an actual man-made snack rather than an actual piece of fruit that's it's cheating mate I'm sorry I'm not happy with that I'm going to call, call the uh, call the referee again get the commissary <laughs>
1: oh,
0: alright mate thanks very much catch up soon